Hey everybody, welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. This week's show, Eric Fawcett and I are going to break down Florida's come-from-behind win over Georgia, and then uh, their flop on the road at the Pavilion, Ole Miss, worst home loss in four years. Gators really just uh, taken to the cleaners by a uh, very middling Reb squad. We'll talk about that. I'm going to give a uh, another long view on the program. I really don't enjoy doing these, but sometimes... Uh, that's just the way a season goes. And um, this one obviously wasn't supposed to go the way it's going. And some things I think continue to need to be said to uh, to our listeners and, and new listeners and everybody alike. So thank you for listening. Um, hope you stick with us. Uh, we're working hard for you through the rest of the season and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman. I am with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Um, season's going just as well as we thought it would. Uh, no, seriously. Um, so we're just going to do this at the top, and that way you don't have to wait to the end to, to listen to it. You don't have to fast forward to the middle. When are they going to talk big picture? Um, this is not a conversation that Eric and I want to keep having on every single podcast. And so here, here's what I'm going to say about a team that's 14 and nine, six and four in the league. Here's what I'm going to say about the program right now. Um, and, and I wrote down some of these thoughts and I want Eric to chime in with his kind of thoughts on my thoughts, but uh, look, I think the coaching job this season has been bad. Uh, not even like average or below average. Like I think bad. Um, I, thought that the coaching job this staff did, and I understand this point will be controversial to some. I thought that the job that this staff did the first three seasons at Florida, not the first two seasons, the first three seasons at Florida was very good. Um, I thought that the third team that lost in the second round of Texas Tech was a little snake bit by a schedule that Eric and I, I know both thought was a little over ambitious. Um, but that was still a team that finished second in the country in quad one wins. Um, that was still a team that won at Rupp Arena, which average teams don't do. Uh, that was still a team that swept Kentucky. That was still a team that was a jump shot from the Sweet 16 um, and got a good look uh, from a shooter that made a lot of them all season. Uh, that was still a team that played the best college basketball game of that season. I'm sorry. I don't even think that's really that debatable uh, and won it. Um, but I think certainly last year's team uh, with three seniors underachieved, uh, even though they made it to the second round, which was admirable to max them out after such a brutal start. I think this team is now underachieving, and I think a lot of it is the coach's fault. I think particularly defensively, they have been late to adjust schematically to what works. Um, they have not tried to adjust schematically to correct or mass deficiencies, which is what the best coaching staffs do. Uh, and I think that that has really hindered this team's growth in conference play and cost them a shot at a conference championship in a down year for the conference, which I think is important to emphasize that this disaster, which it's becoming, is, is happening in a down year for this league. Um, I think offensively, the way that Florida started the season, given its personnel and youth, did not make much sense. I do think the adjustments that they made offensively have been the best part of the coaching job. 
But I also think that because largely because of their inability to adjust defensively and schematically, um, they have put this team in a position where it has to execute at such a high level offensively to win that that's just not sustainable uh, day in and day out. I also think that there are clear chemistry issues, although I can't necessarily speak to those because I'm not in practice. I'm not around these kids all the time, but I do think that there are certainly buy-in issues. Um, and as a coach, that's the easiest way for me to explain why you can play as atrocious as Florida did one half against Georgia and as good as they did in the second half. I just don't think this team is focused all the time. And I think that that is a coaching staff's job. Long term, do I think Florida's going to pay $8.5 million to buy Michael White out at the end of this season? No. Uh, I reserve the right to amend that answer, but no, I don't right now. I think you're all looking at year six of Michael White. Um, but I think entering year six, it's a deserved hot seat as opposed to a made-up fan hot seat. And I think that there need to be significant, significant improvements, particularly in terms of the consistency of the program, in order for me to think that this staff is the right staff for this program, which I continue to believe is the second best program in the SEC and should play like that on an annual basis. That's the end of my rant. I'm just tired of it, Eric. Hey, very well said. I mean, that was great. I was just sitting back here, uh, sitting back here enjoying uh, but uh, yeah, I would uh, I would second you saying that this has not been a very good coaching job. And I mean, you know, for listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you're not uh, you know tuning in for the first time. You've probably been with us for, uh, for this season of uh, of craziness. And uh, I think a lot of our thoughts have been uh, been pretty well established. But I mean, like when I you know have criticisms of the coaching staff, I I like I, I can look at people saying like, oh, this team doesn't play hard enough. There's um, there's effort. Uh, but for me, it's like, I, I'm just looking at, at very specific coaching decisions and saying like, I, I think these are poor and I think that they should have to answer for them, such as starting the season, trying to play, uh, trying to play the, the dribble drive offense. I, I mean, could you imagine if Dan Mullen was like, okay, we're going to start Kyle Trask and we're going to play read option every game. Um, the, on the football side, someone would be like, oh my goodness, Dan Mullen has to, like, has to answer for why he thought that was a good idea. Uh, for Mike White to try to play this style, uh, I, I'm just a little bit surprised by it. And I mean, it's it's players that he recruited. So that's one thing from a bit of a longer term kind of program thing was, you know, Mike White has the system that hasn't worked great at, at the time, or sorry, up until this point at Florida. Uh, but he also recruited players that didn't fit the system. I, I, I mean, if he wants to play, if he wanted to play the dribble drive, you know, Andrew, I, I love Andrew Nemhart. He's probably not your guy. I love Noah Locke. He's not your guy. Like that, it, it's not. It's not a backcourt that's equipped to play dribble drive. So there's decisions like that right off the, you know, the second game of the season when they go get hammered by Florida State. Uh, the defense, like you talked about, Neil, uh, I would I agree with that totally. I don't need to get into that again. Um, you know, something that I've kind of become the guy for, I, I suppose, as people keep tweeting at me, is is the lineup scenario. The fact that Florida keeps getting trapped in just terrible, terrible lineups. They don't play their line. So, so the, the lineup that that I wrote about as their best lineup. Uh, so this is now four straight games where they haven't seen the floor together. That's uh, for those keeping the running count. Uh, you know, so one might say that, that correlates with the team 
starting to not play very well. But uh, so that, <laughs> that lineup hasn't seen the floor in four games. Uh, there's just like this approach of throwing things at the wall and seeing if they stick that uh, I, I'm not saying you should never do that. Like, I do think there's a place for that. But once again, if, if Scott Strickland were to go to white and say like, Hey, can you uh, tell me why you've had these really dry stretches? And, and he says, you know, like I was throwing some things at the wall to see what would stick. And, and that was the answer for multiple games. Uh, I, I kind of wish that he would look at the numbers, look at the, uh, some, some analysis, some analytics and say like, Hey, at least, you know, I made this decision because of this. And if there's data behind it, I, I think at least you can defend it. You can justify it. So uh, the, the, the lineups he's used, the way he's used timeouts, I mean, there's some things that I like very specific things that I have not been a fan of that, that I think that like are, are very just, you know, pointed things that could be asked to white. Like if Scott Strickland wanted to say, Hey, um, we see you've been really inconsistent with your lineups. Why is that? Hey, we don't feel like, there's some questions about your timeout usage. Can you speak to that? Like, it'd be one thing to be like, hey, like, why, why have your players not bought in? Like, that's a pretty big, pretty big question. But also, like, it's a very specific question that I think should be asked about, like, hey, your pick and roll defense has fallen apart. Um, why have you stayed with the same scheme? So, yeah, I, I would say I've also not been, uh, not been plus with the coaching uh, job, which is, uh, yeah, something that won't be a surprise to anyone on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think I don't think we're breaking any news. I just know, <laughs> I know that there is a perception. I don't think a very fair perception, but I understand how these things work. That that maybe we've been too slow to uh, to to criticize the staff or to say openly that you know something isn't working. And I don't necessarily think that's true if you listen to us long enough and and listen to the show. But I think this is just at, at some point, um, you know, these are sorts of questions that have to be answered. And, and I think this is, this is a time now to, to go ahead and answer these questions because this particular season is, is on the brink of, of going sideways in my opinion. And I think that's what makes this coming week. So interesting is that Florida is playing two teams that really are hopelessly overmatched. And I have no confidence None that Florida will go to now. Oh, there's a take. I mean, I I haven't really thought about it. Like, not to give a you know a big coach's cliche, but uh, I haven't really thought past Texas A&M. But uh, hey, let's look at Texas A&M. Texas A&M hammered Missouri by 17 last week, so uh, that's got to be pretty concerning. They've actually beat Missouri twice. Uh, the first game, I believe, they won by like one or, or maybe two, but. Um, they hammered him last week. So, you know, there's a team that uh, struggle with. And uh, uh, right there, that's enough to say. Well, uh, they actually beat Ole Miss too earlier in the year, I believe. Um, I should really pull up Ken Palm. But, yeah, they uh, did. but yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely reason to uh, to be concerned. And, uh, you know, Neil, I, I can't say with uh, with great confidence, too, that I feel like they're going to go in and get uh, get wins against uh, against Texas A.M. and Vanderbilt. And um, that shouldn't really be the case. And you know what? I, I also will, like, like, like I will personally own up to saying that I was pretty slow to get on the uh, the train of concern. I I, I probably had a, a leash that was that was a bit, maybe a bit too long. Uh, so I because I, I I mean I've obviously had my criticisms I talked about it, but I really thought that there would be adjustments. And I would say if I had to just like really boil it down to one uh, to one statement of what I've been disappointed by is that I just do not feel like this has been a dynamic coaching job. Like I I don't feel like there have been 
um, great changes or adjustments. Um, yes, there was the, the big offensive adjustment, but it was r- rooted in uh, starting the season with an offense that I think you could have seen a mile away was not going to work at a high level. And uh, now, now that you are seeing teams at this point of the season kind of preparing, uh, like you just see, uh, you see Ole Miss, they were just totally prepared for Florida's set offenses. Uh, they were prepared for every action, and there just wasn't an answer for it. So if I were to really say just like my one kind of overarching criticism, it's been like this hasn't been an, a dynamic coaching job that's been able to adjust to, uh, uh, to what's happening. Yeah, and look, I think, and I think that's true and probably true for me to some extent, Eric. I probably was a little slow um, to, to be more openly critical. Um, again, I get back to that year three because that to me, Eric, is the biggest thing that I'm starting to, to notice. Like, for example, there's a narrative among white criticism that Florida loses games it shouldn't all the time. I'm not really sure that that is an accurate narrative. Um, and I look at kind of year three as, as the, maybe the example of that, where that team, that Florida team did beat a lot of really good teams. Like I said, second in the country in quad one wins. Florida, the last two seasons is not winning those games. Like quality victories have been few and far between. Florida basically made the NCAA tournament last year because they beat LSU twice and then didn't lose to anyone that they shouldn't have lost to other than Georgia. Right. Um, this season, you know, yeah, they've got the Missouri clunker. They've got the Ole Miss clunker. I don't, we'll get into Ole Miss in a minute. They're not as bad as their record. I know people are going to throw stuff at their podcast now. Um, but, but, uh, it's not like the Gators have gone out and laid eggs against bad teams with the exception of Missouri. Um, they just haven't beaten anybody good, you know, cool. You won it. You beat Xavier. You won the Charleston Classic. That's a good win. Um, but, you know, you had all these other chances for quality Ws, and they just haven't been able to go and snag them other than the Auburn game. And, like, there just haven't been enough Auburn games. Um, and that's, that's a sign of a program that's not growing. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest thing that's concerning to me. I watched uh, UConn play Cincinnati, Eric, and watched James Booknight score 23 points and hit huge shots and free throws down the stretch. And I thought Trey Mann was high, more highly touted and better on film than James Booknight. And this staff can't get him going. They can't put him in his position to be successful. Those are the types of things that are concerning. And this is as fired up as I get. I'm sure everybody can hear it in my voice. But enough is enough. Like, it's time for the staff to make a stand. You want to be here? You know, you want year six and then year seven? You know, this is your Alamo. Rally this team. Figure it out. Or else they're going to go get somebody that can, Doug McDermott. And that's how it's going to be, Doug McDermott. Eric? Oh, who knew the Alamo was going to be uh, actually in, you know, College Station, Texas, or uh, <laughs> when they take on the egg. Or uh, is that game on the – yeah, that is. That is it game. is. Very close There's to my, the Alamo. Uh, okay. I mean, here, here's a Canadian t- uh, trying to make a reference to, uh, to some American history. So that's, uh, that's what, <laughs> about as good as it go. I knew it was in Texas. Uh, yeah, I, I just, once again, like, I, I don't think that the staff needs to, when I, when I say like, I, I would like the, the staff to, to answer for something like answer for the way that they've used lineups. Um, I do think it's fair if someone is like, Hey, like even say someone in the athletic department is 
completely ignorant to basketball and they say like um hey we see that trey man was uh was a five star um and he couldn't really get going could you you know what is it just with no emotion being like hey why do you think that is I, I do think that they should have to answer for that for the lineup stuff and again when i say they should answer that i don't mean like hey let's go have an interview with uh on gator vision or, or chris harry writes an article or something I, like it's not like i it's not like i'm saying they need to go like make a public address but i do think there's people in the in the program that need to ask them and say like um hey why have you made decisions about this and and, and things right. like that and uh that and and if they don't i i mean because like once once again like we have not seen a lot of dynamic changes through the last couple of years and uh even and i and i still you know as much as i have criticized the staff this year i still think it was a great coaching job last year to get those guys just into the ncaa tournament i did not think their roster was uh was great i don't think the talent fits super well because of injuries and and i you know they found a way to to get a win in the ncaa tournament and i i do think they've done some great jobs but at the same time i i do look at it and it's just also like hey like what exactly was getting built and i mean hey maybe they weren't able to start building things up because last year and even the year before to some extent they had to be just grinding through game at a time and and not really building up the young players because uh they're thinking too much about like how they how well not thinking too much i mean when, when you've got an upcoming game, you've got to find a way to win it. And that's got to come first, I think, over over developments of guys. But uh, maybe the fact that the team wasn't playing great, that's it, it was development that was sacrificed. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, how, how they respond to it, I, I do think will be will be really interesting. And the, uh, like you said, <laughs> I, I like that you mentioned that this is their this is their Alamo. I mean, uh, I'm not really sure if. Uh, what's what the situation is going to be like if florida's on the outside looking into the ncaa tournament going into the sec tournament uh is it going to wait for that or is it going to be like hey let's try it like you know let's let's hammer texas a&m and vanderbilt show some positive uh improvements on both sides of the floor and go from there like uh i'm just not entirely sure yeah and I, we're going to move on to basketball games in, in a moment uh, look i don't i don't think there's going to be a coaching change this season um, because of the buyout, because as much as everyone hates this in the hive, uh, when I bring this up, only John Calipari has more NCAA tournament wins during the white tenure than Mike White. And also, how about history? Just Scott Strickland generally has a slow trigger figure, finger uh, with coaches. Um, Amanda Butler's kind of the lone exception to that. And there was like, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, you know, Scott Stricken let Rick Ray coach an extra year at Mississippi State after they went 2-14 and 14 in the league. Uh, and again, there's not a must-champion McIlwain-type situation here where it's a losing season, the culture's on fire. Uh, this is just an underachieving basketball team that I don't think has been particularly well coached. So do I think they're getting year six? I do. But – I wanted to be clear that, like Eric said, there need to be some hard conversations inside the building. And I think baseline expectations need to be laid down. Like, look, this isn't sustainable. And you guys are going to have to do better or, you know, even harder conversations ensue. Fair? Sounds fair. All right. Basketball. <laughs> uh, the worst half I've seen a Mike White team play. Georgia, Florida. I was coaching a basketball game. Eric 
challenged me via text to watch the first half. <laughs> I did. I did. And I, I actually thought like the first eight minutes kind of went fine, um, which I, is kind of a hot take. <laughs> and then the last 12 minutes happened, Eric. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, yes, yeah, some friend I was to make sure that you uh, you had to watch that first half because I I told Neil to do that even like right after the half. It, it wasn't even like, hey, like look at this win. It's going to be so much sweeter when you uh, when you watch the first half. But uh, yeah, I, I was uh, I thought that was probably the most lifeless the team has looked in that that last stretch. I thought they, uh, uh, I, I mean, aided by the fact too that it just went so many minutes like without a whistle, and it was just like this like weird, like dead feeling where, uh, yeah, it was just the, uh, Georgia was just pouring it on and Florida had no answers and, uh, uh, and no timeouts, couple... no timeouts. Yeah. No timeouts. Um, <laughs> so Florida got caught in a pretty tough line. Okay. We're going to get back to the game, Neil. I, I have uh, to go on a, a bit of a, a, a side rant. Let's do it. So, so part of the reason Florida got caught up in this really, really bad, lineup that was getting hammered in the first half there when when florida gave up that huge run uh was because that uh was because that uh the carrie blackshear and you know keontae johnson are out of the game because of foul trouble um this is something that i do not this is another kind of criticism i would have of, of white's coaching and a lot of coaches are like this this is not a, a mike white exclusive but i i think he is way too way too quick to pull guys in foul trouble. And I think that a lot of times Florida has had these really bad runs while Keontae Johnson and Kerry Blackshear, Andrew Nemhart are sitting on the bench with two fouls in the first half. And I understand that like a lot of people do that. Like as soon as a player picks up their second, they're, they're out. But I just think for this Florida team, you've got to be a little more aggressive, keeping your best players on the floor. Like I, I you look at this game, like, or, or sorry, you look at Kerry Blackshear's season. Like there's been, I actually went back and looked. There's been like 12 times a season that he's been pulled uh, due to foul trouble in the first half. Uh, in eight of those games, he ended the game with three fouls and has only fouled out a couple of times. So by taking him out for long stretches so he doesn't pick up more fouls, you're incurring the penalty of him fouling out, but without him actually fouling out. Like the penalty for fouling out is the player's taken off the floor and can't use him. I see no difference between taking a player off for the last couple of minutes because he fouls him out versus a coach taking him off for nine minutes in the first half with two fouls. Like you're taking the penalty of fouling out, except he hasn't even done that. So you might disagree with this, Neil, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it's something we might have talked about like right at the beginning of our, our time doing the podcast a while ago. Yeah. But uh, I, I just do think that, that White is just too aggressive taking guys out with foul trouble. And you're just getting, there's just so many of these times where Florida has ended the first half on just like super negative runs because guys are, guys pick up two fouls and, and then, you know, they end up, they end up playing with like three fouls at the end of the game because uh, that's what happens more often than not. Like, so yeah, I, I, that's my, that's one of my takes is that, that Florida should be a little bit more aggressive, keeping guys on the floor with foul trouble. There's also a very good Ken Pomeroy article that talks about how players foul out much less than you think. And that he, he argues too, that like, coaches shouldn't even take players out with he's actually got the data to say that coaches shouldn't even take out players with three fouls in the first half i'm not quite sure i would go that far uh but uh yeah especially with two fouls and just seeing florida getting hammered while their starters are on the the, the bench with two fouls I, I just don't agree with that yeah and you know what's funny it's i can think of two examples with chris Chioza where he didn't sit him and it either almost paid off or 
did pay off. Like playing Chris Chioza with two fouls down the stretch at Rough Arena, the year that I was referencing, year three, um, just kind of lets Florida hang in there and go into halftime tied, right? Because what was the option otherwise? Take Chris Chioza off the floor and let Mike Okaru and Kayvon Allen run the point at Rupp? Um, or, you know, the NCAA tournament game where he did keep Chioza in. And, and I think now that was an interesting one, Eric, because he kept him in in the first half, but then he kept him in with 3,000. Of course, Chioza got the quick fourth, right? But, but I think even in those circumstances, like Florida almost wins that game, um, you know, and, and maybe, they, maybe they do win the game if he doesn't have to take Chioza out for a couple minutes late. But, but, I mean, you'd think that, like, you would glean – and maybe Mike White does, and I, and, I, and I do think Mike is really reflexive almost to a fault sometimes. Like, I think he overthinks things sometimes. If you listen to his answers to the media, and maybe – Maybe that's why, for Mike, he's like, well, yeah, but that was Chris Chioza, and like it works for him, you know. It might not work for Kerry Blackshear, but I, I'm with you. I think, I think when you have, especially this Florida team, Eric, because this team clearly has three guys that they have to have on the floor to play well: Kerry Blackshear, Keontae Johnson, and Andrew Nimhart. And one thing that's been a common thread in all of Florida's games where they've gotten way behind. Um, has been Keontae Johnson being not on the floor. Well, yeah, I, I just think you need to – like, once again, this is a little bit analytic-based thinking, which is I know is a little bit different than the way that White feels things, but you've got to treat every possession like it's worth the same. Like, you can't – like, Mike White using his timeouts, like saving them all for the end of the game uh, instead of using them to stop runs, that's saying that, like, I, you know, the final two minutes are just far more important than – the first 35 because I'm not going to use them to stop a run. And that's the same thing with uh, that's the same thing with this. Uh, let's take players out early. It's like, because like, it's like we need at all costs to have them there on the floor in the last couple of minutes where it's like, yeah, but if you, if you give up, if you continually are giving up these like minus 10 minus 15 runs with your start, like, like that's worth more than the, the like having Nemhart versus Trey Mann. Like that is definitely uh, there's definitely an, an increase in production when you've got Nemhard in there starting at the point guard. But like that that increase on one or two possessions is not worth the minus like 13 Florida had in that run against Georgia. Like uh, and, and once again, like Keontae Johnson too sits that game uh, or yeah sits with two fouls, uh, finishes the game with two fouls. So he incurred the penalty of fouling out, even though he ended the game with two fouls, not even close to, to fouling out. So. Uh, yeah, that's, that's just something that, uh, something to think about when you see Florida giving up these tough runs with their bench on the floor while their starters are out there with, or out on the pine with two fouls. It's just something, and actually Ken Palm tracks this. They've got two foul participation as a stat. And, uh, so you can actually see like what coaches like to, uh, you know, will give their players some run and who won't. And Florida is, uh, 311th. So they are uh, oh. definitely a team that does not risk it too often. And yeah, I just uh, would be a strategy that I would strongly consider changing. There you go. Um, the, the game, you know, interesting that in the second half, Florida's defense really picks up, particularly the way that they defend Anthony Edwards. Oh, sorry. I've got one more go take ahead. before I go at the Edwards. Uh, someone who did use a timeout in the, uh, uh, I don't want to keep ragging on, on White's decision-making here, but 
Uh, so uh, there's a timeout with 36 seconds left, 37 seconds left. Uh, to me, that would be the opportunity to put in your to put in your starters back on the game because Georgia's shooting free throws, so you're going to have one offensive possession and like right. defend for. Uh, so Andrew Nemhart, Keontae Johnson, Kerry Blackshear, all not on the floor. So mm. that again is a that's wait like it's wasting possessions, man. Like I just like it, he go, he has an opportunity to put whoever he wants in for an offensive possession where you know picking up a foul is fairly unlikely and he doesn't put any of his best three offensive players out there like those are uh, again those are decisions that i think someone like someone's got to be someone's got to be in the coach's ear there saying like hey like we need to get our best guys out here like the chance and once again like there's three guys in foul trouble are they all going to pick up fouls in one in one possession uh, right. probably unlikely maybe one of them picks up a fluke foul when you defend for seven seconds after you have your offensive possession I, I really think that's a risk you've got to run. So that was another coaching decision uh, I was not a big fan of. Uh, if you, uh, I don't know if you have a comment on that, but uh, if not, you can start talking about Anthony Edwards, who's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, he got going from outside, which which is not good. Uh, we saw it when they when they played Kentucky. He hit a bunch of shots. When they played him in Athens, he hit a bunch of shots early. And um, you know, I don't know. What do you think of his jump shot? Like, it's okay, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's kind of funky looking, but but it works, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's just he's just so physical. Um, it's just very hard to to guard him because he can use his body to shield defenders, and and uh, he's pretty explosive. Yeah, I, I really had no problem with the way Florida defended him for for most of it. Like, I know there's some people who saw him hit a couple shots and then say like, yeah, uh, you know, hey. Uh, Florida's got to like do literally whatever possible to get it out of his hands. Um, I, I actually didn't mind that, that Florida, it's not like Florida started trapping him over the, as soon as he went over half. And that's what you'd really need to do if you were really concerned with him shooting. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought Florida played him straight up. There was one or two of his threes, like his, his last three, maybe uh, I thought Florida was a little bit lazy. I forget which player was fighting over a screen and he was able to sit behind that and shoot. Didn't love that, but generally speaking, I, I actually did think Florida defended pretty well. And, mm-hmm. you know, he is someone who entered the game like close to 30% only from three. Uh, the next game he played against Alabama, he was 0 for 6 from the three-point line. So really, like, playing the numbers, like, Anthony Edwards is so dangerous near the rim. Uh, he's generally not a great jump shooter. So I do think that that Florida making him a jump shooter was was a fine strategy. I know some people are still going to be like, well, he had all those shots. I mean, I, I, I actually still agree with that, the way Florida right. defended him. Yeah, I was going to – I think so too. I, I, one thing that I thought, you know, made a huge difference was just the way that Florida schematically played defense, though, in this game. What did you think of of using that zone and, and maybe not even coming fully out of it in demand like they traditionally do when they show zones? Uh, well, I mean, they've got caught in so many times trying to uh, – trying to when they do switch from zone to man, there was, uh, you know, the like two possessions they did that – uh, the two possessions in the last game, it went fairly poorly and they got, they gave up open shots because some guys didn't match up when the others did. Uh, so I do think that like, generally speaking, they, they seem to be better off just like committing to, to playing that zone and not, not going into man. And uh, that's kind of the thing about playing zones. It's just, it's a little bit of a curveball. It's a little bit of an off speed pitch. When you, uh, when you throw it in there for a couple minutes at a time, it's, it's tough for teams to adjust to. Uh, and uh, obviously it worked against Georgia who were just kind of generally, generally confused by it and and the way florida plays the three too like they definitely have some pretty uh some pretty different rotations than your like traditional three two 
So uh, for that reason, it was it totally confused them. So I thought it was uh, super well executed by the players. I, I'm glad that White went to it, and uh, yeah, obviously it was a big part of the a big part of them coming back into the game. Now I want to get into offensive efficiency and Andrew Nimhard going nuts, but I, I I want to stick with defense for one more question because I think it's going to be a surprisingly uh, big theme when we talk about the Ole Miss game. But but Eric, you know, aside from playing the best defensive lineup, which hasn't seen the floor in four games. Uh, do you think kind of mixing defenses and playing some junk defenses is something that it's time for the staff to consider doing? Um, or, or do you still want to see them drop pick and roll coverages, maybe play a little more pack line, get into gaps and, you know, try to just kind of shift their identity more subtly than, you know, throw the kitchen sink out at people defensively. I think you got to throw the junk. Like I, I'm all for these kind of obs- more obscure defenses that uh, you, you match up in, in zones. You sometimes switch back to man out of it. Uh, you you put rotations in that are different than the prototypical three two because uh, you know I saw it a little bit with uh, with the, the way that Georgia tried to attack it. They they thought Florida was going to rotate one particular way because there's a way that you would normally move around your defense in the three two. Uh, Florida didn't do it, and uh, for that reason, Florida got steals and and forced tough shots. So, um, like I think you've got to look at the season and say like, hey, if we're going to try to play straight up man defense with uh, the style that. Uh, uh, you know, that we started the season with, I, I think you've just got to see a pretty large sample size that it's not going to work against the best teams. And, and for that reason, I do think that um, some overhaul that's more like, like, you know, you asked, uh, you asked about being like maybe making some more subtle differences. Uh, I, I'm just not really sure that's going to be enough. Like I, I'd almost want to answer to all of the above, like I, as one of your alternate defenses, like why not have two you know, distinct man defenses where one of them is a little bit more denying passing lanes and, and being aggressive. And uh, the other one is total pack line. Like I, I just like, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would use two man defenses as if they were, you know, one of them were a zone and you were switching up because if you're used to play, you know, if you're an offense playing against man defense and, and they're denying passing lanes uh, and then they come out of a timeout and they're playing pack line. I, I mean, that's, that's the same difference in a lot of ways that if they were playing one, three, one, and then went to man, like those are, uh, it's not a junk defense, but it's it's something that can really confuse. So so I absolutely think like I, I just don't see Florida being able to defend straight up man for forty minutes and, and really being able to compete with the the best teams. So uh, yeah, bring on the uh, uh, bring on the off speed pitches. Yeah, man, I, I'm with you. I actually think playing as many junk defenses as they can and more zone. Show me more zone. I, Florida has guys that can rebound out of it. I mean, we just saw uh, Scotty Lewis. Ripped down nine boards, uh, most of them out of the out of zone looks. Kerry Blackshear is going to rebound out of anything, um, so you know that's like usually one of the biggest concerns when you play zone is, hey man, are we going to be able to rebound out of it? Um, you know, Florida can, and and to be quite honest, with the switching defense, Florida has had these games where they get torched from the outside anyway, so you kind of wonder like, there's no real risk there. Um, you know, can't get much worse, quite honestly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think Eric's right. I think you got to junk it up, but it was an interesting kind of coach's corner question that I wanted to ask, especially with a Florida team that's down to 70th now in, in Kim Palm adjusted defensive, uh, efficiency, which is about as low as they've been in the white era. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. And again, this is, this is a chance uh, for white to show that he can be a little bit more dynamic because Florida's never been a team that has been able to play zone for long stretches. And uh, yeah, once again, I, I do think that 
I think that Florida has obviously been slow to adjust defensively because they, they've really stuck with the system that, you know, we don't think has, has really worked that well. Uh, but uh, Hey, better late than never. And I mean that same with, same with the offense. I mean, they've tried the dribble drive for a couple seasons now and just saw that it saw that it wasn't the best fit. So, uh, you know, they, they have shown that they, you know, could make changes there. Just was going to take a little bit of <laughs> a little while, but, uh, yeah, I, I would just say like, yeah, once again, I think you just look at your team and say like, we've got the sample size. Are we going to be able to keep doing what we're doing? Uh, not at a high level. So you got to change it up. And I would say drastically. Yep. So Florida um, survives the Georgia game. It was a really weird one because like the Gators, obviously the first team in, in division one, the only team in division one to have overcome two 20 plus point deficits this season. And one Florida, Georgia got all the way back within two, Eric. So Florida almost went from 20 down to 10 up and then lost the lead again, but that didn't happen. Uh, so a game that was kind of a microcosm of the whole roller coaster season. Yeah. Can you imagine if Florida was like, like, I don't know in the last, the last time some team has overcome a 20 point deficit and given up a 10 point lead in the, the same path. Uh, that would be pretty wild. And just a, you know, a, a podcast and a conversation. I just, would not have wanted to have, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately like that's, that's one thing. If you want to create something, you've got to credit this basketball team with like, I, I know it's uh, sometimes it's been in games where uh, it should have never gotten to that point. Uh, but Florida has shown that they're, they're competitors. And when it gets down to these final possessions and in, in tight games, they, they have performed quite well. So uh, I've really got to give them credit there. Yeah. I give them credit there, but then I don't give team weird much credit for, uh, what happened at Ole Miss where I didn't think that they competed. This is an interesting game because Florida closed the first half pretty well, uh, especially defensively, I thought. Some of their best defensive basketball of the season, the last 10 minutes of the first half, the Ole Miss game. Gators actually get within two, 35-33 with 17 minutes to go. That was Kerry Blackshear's last bucket, by the way. Uh, so he was at 11 points then. He would finish with 11 and Ole Miss closes the game on a 33-18 run that felt worse. Yeah, it, it really did feel worse. I mean, uh, it was one of those games that, like, garbage time felt like it started at, like, the nine-minute mark. You know what I mean? Like, it just, yeah. like, for, for a game that wasn't really, you know, that out of hand, uh, it's not like they were down 30. It, like, you know, like, against Florida State, garbage time started early, but that was because the score was like that. Like, this one was still – still pretty close, but it was just like, you know, Florida would have some semblance of a open jumper in transition and it would rim out. And uh, then they'd come up and on the other side and give up a layup and, uh, or Bree and Tyree would just rise up and hit something ridiculous. And just, yeah, it, it really just felt like uh, it, it Yeah. I would just say that was kind of the, the feel is that it felt like garbage time came early. And that usually means that, it, that a team is, has kind of given up. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe some of the, the inability to kind of power through the comeback was, was Andrew's ankle. Um, but it really felt like, to me, uh, this was one of those games where Florida defended pretty well for 20 minutes. We saw Bria and Tyree and Devontae Shuler in particular both make a bunch of difficult shots in the first half. Um, and then Florida's defense drops off and – not only did their defense drop off, but you know they just stopped executing at a at a at any real level offensively. 
Yeah, I haven't actually gone through and seen, but they were at zero point seven seven points per possession. Florida was. Uh, I, I think that that could very well be their worst or um, second worst because I do know against Florida State they were at point zero or sorry, they're zero point eight. So it was even worse than the uh, Florida State uh, performance. Which so so I if not one of the worst, this could have been the worst. Uh, but yeah, offensively there was just nothing happening, and I just feel like. A lot of the turnovers were just backbreaking. Um, Fifteen turnovers for the team. Uh, I mean, there were some shot clock violations where where guys just were completely unaware of the clock. Uh, I mean, Quez Glover had four turnovers, and all of them were on. I I, I would say non-scoring plays. Like, uh, and that's what's really killed this team. I feel is a lot of these turnovers that are on like not scoring plays. Like, for example, like like Nemhard had a turnover where he tried to throw an alley-oop pass in a traffic to, to Omar Payne, you know, probably not a, you, probably an ill-advised pass, very difficult pass. But if Omar Payne catches the ball, he's scoring. Uh, when you have a, a, a basic guard to guard pass that gets picked off for a dunk on the other way, like, like that's a turnover that you're giving that like on, on a nothing play like that. Uh, those are the turnovers that are killing Florida. So uh, I, I thought the turnovers, Obviously, you're wasting a possession. You're giving Ole Miss transition opportunities, uh, and I also feel like it just killed a lot of Florida's momentum because those are those are backbreakers. Yeah, I agree. And then offensively, you know, it really was it really was turnovers that allowed Ole Miss to stretch the lead. Noah Lock hits a three uh, to cut it to four again after you know it's thirty five thirty three. Gets to forty thirty six, and then Florida defends great for twenty eight seconds, and Devontae Shuler hits a contested two. Um, but then Florida's next four possessions, Eric, were a turnover, a turnover, a turnover, and another turnover. Two by Keontae, one by Scotty Lewis, one by Andrew Nimard. And by the time Florida next took a shot, which was a 18-foot Kerry Blackshear jumper, which about sent me off my couch into the depths of hell. Um, Florida was already behind 46-36. So just like that, that Noah Locke shot that cut it to four had gone back, the lead had ballooned back out to 10 and ultimately would get all the way up to, uh, you know, 48 to 38 before Keontae Johnson made a layup um, after a, a nice, you know, a uh, little pass, interior pass. Uh, from Nimard, but I thought Florida, you know, just a miserable, miserable stretch from about the 15 minute mark to the, I don't know, eight minute mark. And then like Eric said, by then it just felt like garbage time. That's a, that's crazy. The, I mean, I obviously watched it, I, but uh, didn't register how long it was between Florida was able to get field goal attempts up at the rim. Uh, and I mean, th- there still seems to be, a, a lack of an understanding of what a good shot is and what's a, yeah. what's a bad shot. Um, I guess that's a little bit of a, of a tease for something I wrote a little, uh, a few days ago. Um, I did this earlier in the season or sorry, I did this in the off season and we talked about it on the podcast, but it was like, what are Florida's best and worst shots? So I just looked through every player and found what their best and worst shots were from a points per possession standpoint. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can see what shots are good and, and what are not. And, and Kerry Blackshear, shooting these mid-range jumpers is, uh, are, are not great looks. And something, that, something else that I thought was 
has been a little bit of a problem for Florida recently. And this happened against Georgia as well, when Florida was in a really bad stretch. Like you saw that you saw their play calling and, and how their offense was working. And it was like, you know, Scotty Lewis getting ball screens. Um, that has not been a good offense for Florida with him as a pick and roll ball handler or Noah Locke running ball screen. That has not been a great look for Florida. That's just not where those players are, are, are used best. Like, and I think that that's almost like, you know, we talk about shot selection and it's usually a little bit of like, you know, who's, who's got the ball in, in a shooting position and decides to shoot or not. Um, I would also say like, you know, when you see Noah Locke or Scotty Lewis down at the guard spot and they're waiting for a screen to come, uh, so that they can go attack off it. I just like you, you look at the numbers and you just know there's, those are not great looks. And I also thought that there was just de- definitely an element of that where it was Florida trying to get into games with uh, uh, some of their, uh, some of their guys kind of playing out of their, out of their strengths. And uh, yeah, ultimately it, it kind of leads to, to one of the worst offensive uh, games of the year. Yeah, it really did. And so the worst home loss or the worst road loss for Florida in four seasons uh, the Gators hadn't been beaten that bad in a road contest since year one of the white era. Um, you know, obviously a lot of noise in the system. I think we addressed that at length at the beginning of the show. Florida now rolls into a one-week stretch where I said, I still have no confidence they win both these games. They certainly should. Uh, it starts with Texas A&M on Wednesday night at Reed Arena. The Aggies, just a miserable offensive basketball team. Um, but one, the, I'll, I'll throw out this but since I've already teased that I'm not confident Florida wins both games. Uh, but one that is way better at home than away. They have the largest home away disparity in the SEC in terms of um, efficiency and in terms of uh, victory margin for whatever you you put into that uh, metric. Um, but you know that is kind of interesting. Uh, they. Played LSU tight at home, went to overtime against them, uh, beat, beat the Ole Miss team that just crushed Florida at Reed Arena. They beat them. Um, beat Missouri handily at home last week. Uh, so, you know, definitely have been much, much better in the friendly confines of, of Reed Arena where they do shoot the ball a little better. Uh, Eric, your thoughts initially on, on Buzz Williams and his inaugural year with the Aggies? Yeah, this is not a talented team. Uh, I, I do not like uh, like looking up and down their roster and, and watching some of their games. Like, they're just some guys that are not high major basketball players. And uh, right. this is also this is just like legitimately the worst shooting team I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, and they, I just looked at it now just to, to kind of confirm. Yeah, they are three hundred fiftieth in the country in three point percentage. <laughs> That's uh, almost they, last. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah, they don't, they don't have a single player who shoots 30% from three, which I don't think I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah, there is. Also, uh, they, they turn the ball over a ton, don't they, Eric? I think they, yeah. Yeah, so let's see. Yeah, turnover. Yeah, they're 315th in the country in turnover percentage. Oh. So, uh, so, yeah, just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I love Buzz Williams. I, I just think the, the dudes that are on the team are, are not great. And he had some he has some good young players that uh, that came with him. But, uh, yeah, just like not, not guys that are – you know, people who can really compete as freshmen. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of look to say, like, you know what, Florida's, Florida's not going to face a team that is this bad at shooting the basketball um, because there's just, you know, very few teams that are this bad. Um, I guess that they're, like, third last, but, I mean, those are behind them is, like, Kennesaw State and a couple other low majors. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I am just interested to see, like, 
what Florida does defensively because, I mean, some of their problems this year have been uh, when they especially try to guard and pick and roll is they get strung out, they get in rotation, and they give up points at the rim. Well, like, uh, against a team that really doesn't shoot, I, I think you've got to try to protect the rim a little bit more. Uh, you know, Neil, like you talked about, hey, does Florida try to play a little bit more pack line and play in the gaps? Uh, if ever there was a team to try to put that in against and, and start working it, it would be against Texas A&M, who's probably not going to punish you from the three-point line if you, uh, if you try to really protect the paint. Yeah, I think that's what they have to do, especially because, like, the thing that – and I would say that this is, like, the sign that Williams is doing a good job, by the way, for me, is coaches want to control the controllables. Um, you know, I know it's a cliche, but they have controlled the controllables defensively. Uh, they are 70th in the country in defense efficiency. That's a respectable number given the talent that they have, like Eric said, I think. Um they force turnovers at a high rate, which means they're active. That means that they're playing hard. Uh, they defend the three-point line, so they're not going to get beat from deep. They're going to make you earn your buckets. Um, 46 in the country in that uh, in that category, and you know they do harass the passing lanes a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I see that number at 18 percent in non-steal turnover percentage, which means that they kind of force you into mistakes moving the basketball. Um, so I think. Those are kind of things you can control because really outside of Savion Flag, like Eric said, not really anybody that scares you on that basketball team from an offensive standpoint. Yeah, and they do offensive rebound uh, quite well, and I think that part of that yep. is that they, they're aware of the fact that they are not great shooting the ball, and uh, for that reason, they're going to try to get after it, and they, they do pretty effectively, and it's, it's not a big or athletic team so uh the way that they they get on the glasses is pretty impressive and yeah we know that florida has had problems defensively rebounding uh and i think that if if texas a&m is going to beat them uh it's probably going to require them getting extra possessions so uh so that's where that's where you've got to see some improvement too is is, is florida kind of locking down the glass not giving up uh, second chance opportunities uh and uh yeah i think it's good that you noted the defense like like i like i like i'm not trying to be rude but again i, I look at texas a&m's team and I just like see guys that are not high major players. Like I'm not sure what's going to happen after the season, but I, I like, if you're a low major coach, I'd be sniffing around Texas A&M because uh, there's going to be, so it's going to be, you know, one stop shopping for, for transfers. I feel so uh, yeah, there's some dudes that are not very good. And, and I think that Buzz Williams is, has done about as well as you could, uh, you could imagine, but yeah, they are 275th offensively in, in Ken Palm. Um, that's got to be one of the lowest high major teams. Uh, I can't imagine there being too many below that. Uh, so uh, it, it is pretty like, <laughs> I say that also to say like when Neil said that he was not confident that Florida was going to win these next two games. Uh, I want you to know how serious of, of a comment that was because Texas A&M is, is struggling. Yeah. I mean, they're not that good. And, and again, if you look at Haslametrics, they defend just as well as Florida from an efficiency standpoint, which is just a terrifying thought because again, I, I don't want to try not to, I'm trying not to belittle like the roster that Billy Kennedy left buzz, but uh, you know, they have some freshman pieces, but really beyond Wendell Mitchell and Savion flag, those aren't really power six players. You know, I'll, I guess I was, I was trying to be respectful and just got disrespectful. Right. Um, and, it's tough. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's tough to think about that roster defending as well as Florida, um, it, given given talent and personnel. So, but that's where we're at right now. That's where we're at, and that's what makes you know a night like Wednesday night scary. Because when I call it the Alamo, 
It's not because you can get to San Antonio in a couple hours. It's because, you know, you can't lose this game and go to the NCAA tournament. So is there an outcome from this game that would leave you, like, encouraged? You know what I mean? Like, if Florida wins by 20 or if they win by 30 or, like, like what is that? What would be, like, in however you want to answer the question, what would be, like, a successful game against Texas A&M in your mind that would be, like, yes, this is a step forward? 15 to 20 point win where A&M is in the 50s offensively. Yeah, that's uh, I definitely think that's where uh, where you do have to see the uh, the, the most improvement is uh, against a team that's uh, I, I or oh, I'm going to look I'm going to have to look and see if they're the worst power five team in Ken Palm's offense. But uh, yeah, certainly the worst in the SEC. Uh, that you you've got to see improvement. Like even if you're the like Florida's 69th in, in Ken Palm defensively, I don't know. What you, I forget what you mentioned it was in uh, uh, it has the metrics, but yeah, they're they're 69 in Ken Palm and uh, Texas A&M is 70 in defense. So, uh, but yeah, like you, you've got to lock that team down. Like you've got to do what is expected when you play one of the worst offenses in the country and, and defense. So, uh, yeah, and I, I would also just. Uh, I'm definitely looking to it, like, which is again, Pete, like, I mean, people who listen to the podcast know this is not, this is not an Eric Fawcett type take I'm about to deliver because I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a body language uh, expert. Um, but I, I do think just like demeanor around the team will, will be huge because I do think they could even win by like 15 points and not play, uh, and not play particularly well. Like, uh, so I am looking to see, like, hey, does, does does Florida just look like composed out there? Do they look like they're focused? Do they look like they are? Uh, you know, yeah. Do they look like when they're if they go from man to if they go from zone to man? Are they are they locked in? Like I just want to see like execution. Like like this is a team. Like again, Texas A and M is lower in Ken Palm than Marshall. They're lower in Ken Palm than Towson. Like I, and I know those are games that didn't go particularly well for Florida. <laughs> uh, but but again, like. That that's the caliber of opponent like you got you, that that they're dealing with. Like I know that you, it's tough to get like SEC opponent out of your mind, but this is no normal SEC opponent. So, uh, yeah, I, I am just looking for a team that looks looks like they're playing with confidence. Uh, that's looking like they're uh, they're happy to be there and not just like uh, loathing trying to put this together. Like I'll, I'll be looking at some of those things. Yeah, no, I, it's hard to argue with that stuff. So that's uh, eight thirty Wednesday night. Um, we will try to come back and do a show. I know we, we did a, we kind of had one show a week for, for the last couple of weeks. We're going to try to fix that, come back with the A&M and then talk uh, Billy Donovan a little bit and Saturday's uh, Vanderbilt game, which should be a special time for everybody. Hopefully Florida's coming off a victory. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, thanks for listening to, uh, to the show, everybody. Bye-bye.